Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? You know, I thought it might be interesting to talk about how data can both be easy to lose and hard to lose. It's a paradox. But really, this is all about the media upon which we store data and how that media can pose various challenges. Now, first up, let's just talk about the concept of obsolescence. So, As our technology, our language, our culture, as all these things evolve and we discover new ways to commit information to different types of media, we often leave the older methods behind. Uh, For example, very few people are recording audio to wax cylinders today. For example, you know, Thomas Edison did it, but you don't see people doing it now, at least not outside of, you know, historical demonstrations and that sort of thing. Uh, The days of storing info magnetically onto strips of metal, like we saw at the end of the 19th century, that's pretty far behind us too, although magnetic tape is built on the same principle. But before we used tape, we used wire. Um, 
not that frequently, but it was one of those things that kind of paved the way toward magnetic tape. Now, over time, all media will ultimately go obsolete, either because the stuff we recorded upon has worn out, the actual physical stuff has broken, or because we've lost the ability to retrieve information from that type of media. And that inability to retrieve can range from the technical to just our knowledge of how to do it. So let's take a moment to consider something that is pretty far removed from modern technology, unless you watch Stargate, and that is hieroglyphs. So thousands of years ago, the people of ancient Egypt developed a writing system that was complicated to say the least. So uh, our Latin alphabet, the one that we use in, in English, for example, has 26 characters, right? 26 letters in the alphabet. Uh, and hieroglyphs had hundreds of characters, like a thousand or more. Now, some of the characters in ancient Egypt represented basic phonemes. Uh, phonemes are sounds within a language, right? Like ch would be a phoneme or s. Like these are basic sounds. Uh, but other characters in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, they represented entire words or at least parts of words. Uh, some represented syllables. So not necessarily parts of words like you would think, but a, a syllable that was common in ancient Egypt. But over the millennia, the knowledge of how to read hieroglyphs faded from Egyptian culture. There were a lot of reasons for this. I mean, the the style of writing down information changed from hieroglyphs to like demotic writing and beyond. Uh, also, you had folks like, you know, Europeans like Greeks and Romans who were invading Egypt and changing things and disrupting Egyptian culture significantly. By the time we got a few centuries into the common era, pretty much no one knew how to read the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt anymore. So we had all this knowledge stored in various places and no way to retrieve that knowledge. Uh, it appeared as though we had lost all of it or that we had, due to some misconceptions, completely misinterpreted that knowledge. So by the time we got into the medieval era, there was this prevailing hypothesis that the Egyptian hieroglyphs were symbolic in meaning. And by that, I mean that the images that the Egyptians used were thought of to be direct symbols of whatever the message was. So let's say you had images of a boat and a snake. Then you might be led to think that what you're looking at must be an allegorical story about snakes on a boat, possibly starring Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, but no, the symbols used weren't meant to represent exactly what they looked like. They represented elements of a language. So, for example, if you want to understand what I'm saying, it, it, our letter S looks kind of like a snake, right? But it doesn't mean snake. When you see the letter S, that doesn't mean snake. Uh, it could be the beginning of the word snake. Obviously, that begins with S, but it could mean anything. It represents the S sound, which is found in lots of words, not just snake. And the hieroglyphs were similar, but no one had a document that matched hieroglyphs to some other known language so that someone could actually decipher the symbols. So it just seemed to be you know, uh, all these icons that the meaning had been completely lost. But then came Napoleon Bonaparte. 
and his armies invaded Egypt toward the end of the 18th century. And in the process, the armies happened across something incredibly important, and it would later be called the Rosetta Stone. Now, the Rosetta Stone itself is a type of monument, and there are carvings on the monument that represent an official dynastic decree. The carvings are in three different written languages. So at the base of the monument, you have the carving in ancient Greek. Above that is Demotic. That is an Egyptian language that followed the hieroglyph language. And at the top are hieroglyphs. And since all three carvings represented the same decree, this gave experts the opportunity to finally begin deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so began the long process of uncovering lost knowledge. And this was helped by subsequent discoveries of similar decrees so that we, over time, were able to understand uh, what these, these hieroglyphs actually stood for. We understood that it was a written language that wasn't just purely symbolic. Now, my point in telling the story is that we have to remind ourselves that while we have ways to record knowledge, it would be foolish for us to assume that any way that we use is permanent because we've got plenty of examples of knowledge being lost in the past, whether it's because people forgot how to access that knowledge, or maybe the knowledge was based in folklore and the people that were the stewards of that knowledge were wiped out or assimilated and the knowledge was lost. Or maybe the physical copies, if it was like a written language, maybe the physical copies were lost. And a shout out to the late great Library of Alexandria, which I should add, kind of faded away, not just because of the famous fire set by Julius Caesar's forces, though that clearly was a catastrophic event, but also there was a long period in which leaders were cracking down on scholars because, well, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, so a lot of knowledge has got to be absolutely deadly, right? But anyway, let's skip ahead to the modern era. So even today, we run the risk of losing access to information because we no longer make the stuff what plays the media that we used in the old days. Or at least in many cases, it is getting really tricky to track down the components that can retrieve data from those types of media, right? You might be able to find old working equipment that can access certain types of stuff that otherwise we no longer can access. But it's, it's rare that you're going to find someone make a new version of that. It's not impossible. It's not like we've lost all ability to. It's just that unless there is a pressing financial benefit to creating that kind of stuff, no one's going to bother to do it because, you know, it, it's expensive to produce uh, older types of, of uh, technologies. And unless there's a financial incentive, no one's going to do it, um, sad to say. So... There's also the danger that the media we rely upon could wear out and deteriorate over time. Uh, so, for example, let's consider celluloid or film. Cinematic film degrades over time, uh, particularly if it's in a hot and moist environment. Uh, and you might have heard about some filmmakers storing prints of their movies or masters of their movies in old salt mines, such as the one that's below Hutchinson, Kansas in the United States. These subterranean spaces maintain a constant temperature of around 68 Fahrenheit or 20 Celsius. 
and they have a low humidity, somewhere between like 40 to 45% humidity. Uh, of course, movies are not the only thing stored in those mines. Uh, that, in fact, we got the idea because of the, the story of the Monument Men, who ended up finding uh, lots of stolen art from uh, uh, various parts of Europe that the Nazis had collected and stored in salt mines. We ended up kind of using the same idea so, because it's a, a great way to preserve stuff if you they, uh, otherwise it's in danger of deterioration. Also, we have to acknowledge that while it's a great way to preserve stuff, there's a tragedy here because we're also removing it, right, from us. You know, we're storing it and we're preserving it, but to what end? If, if you can't, access it, then it doesn't really like there's a lot of questions. There are philosophical questions. If you have a, a priceless work of art stored in a salt mine and no one can go there, is it the same as not having it at all? Now, in the case of film, a lot of studios will actually use those master recordings when they want to do a remastered version of the film. They want to release it on, say, like Blu-ray or something. They'll go to the the original print that's stored in the salt mine, and they'll pull from that. But yeah, there's lots of other stuff besides just film down there. Uh, anything that needs a controlled environment in order to stop or at least slow deterioration. Now, magnetic tape is another important storage method, and we've been using magnetic tape as storage since the mid-20th century, around 1951 or so. And again, the basic principle behind it dates back to the late 19th century. That was when we were using magnetic wire. But whether it's reel-to-reel -reel tape or cassettes or VHS tapes, we've relied on this methodology to store all sorts of information from, you know, computer information to music in the case of like the cassette tapes of the 80s and 90s or the uh, VHS videotapes. All sorts of info we have committed to magnetic tape. And a lot of companies still rely on magnetic tape for long-term storage and backups. Uh, when I use long-term storage, I'm speaking relatively, as we will see. Now, some older forms of magnetic tape are largely obsolete because the devices we'd use to read the data from them are out of production. You might find a working device here or there, but they can be pretty rare. And being mechanical in nature, they will eventually require maintenance or they'll stop working. And when you're talking about this kind of stuff, often you're talking about things that have parts that no one's making anymore. So it becomes very challenging to keep them in good working order because there's a limited supply of components you can use to make replacements when something breaks down. On top of all that, magnetic information itself can degrade over time. Uh, actually, it can degrade really quickly if it's in the presence of a strong magnetic field, which is why, as a kid, I was told never to bring a magnet close to a computer or computer disks, because you could actually uh, corrupt information that's stored on those, those devices, because the magnet would realign the magnetic components that were on this plastic film, or in the case of a computer, uh, ar arrayed on a platter inside the hard disk drive. Now, on average, if stored in decent conditions, magnetic tape typically will retain data from anywhere between 10 to 20 years. Uh, when stored in prime conditions, like in that salt mine, for example, you might stretch it to around 30 years. So magnetic tape can hold on to data for a while, but certainly not indefinitely. It will, sooner or later, degrade to a point where 
the, the information will be corrupted or irretrievable. Now, on a similar note, let's talk floppy disks. Uh, so when I was a kid, our Apple IIe computer had a five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive. Uh, th these were not the first floppy disks. There were older ones. There were larger ones. IBM created eight inch floppy disks, for example. And uh, the disks that I was familiar with back when I was using the Apple IIe were these plastic envelopes. And the envelopes were covering a disk of magnetic film on the inside. Uh, and it was on this magnetic disk that you could save and retrieve data. Uh, and I actually had to look this up because I could not remember it myself, but the original five and a quarter inch floppy disks could hold up to 90 kilobytes of data. That's when they were first created. Uh, so that's just 90 kilobytes. But over time, you know, engineers improved the technology. They increased the capacity of floppy disks. Typically, they did this by creating more precise read-write heads so they could store data in smaller physical sizes, which meant you could cram more of it onto the same size disk. They also figured out how to multi-layer disks, so that increased storage as well. I think, you know, some disks ma maxed out at around 720 kilobytes, so significantly more than 90, but still way less than what we use today. Now, I'm going to talk more about floppy disks and other forms of storage and why all these different types have kind of a limited shelf life of one span or another. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. 
explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back, and we were talking about floppy disks. Well, my parents write novels, and so my dad's first books, which were written in the early 80s, they were written on that old Apple IIe computer, and he would save chapters of his books to floppy disks. Uh, Each novel would take up several disks, like, I don't know, around a dozen or so? I can't quite remember. I remember we had disk uh, holders that would hold like maybe three of his novels because that's how many discs would be taken up just by, you know, storing chapters onto them. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually still owns those floppy discs, uh, but I imagine that even if he does, he doesn't have any way to check and see if the data is still there or not. He would need an Apple IIe or an emulator to simulate an Apple IIe on another machine. Plus, he would have to have a floppy disk drive connected to whatever computer he was using in order to try and read those disks. And floppy disk drives are not completely gone. They You can still find them. They are increasingly rare, however. So it's easy to imagine that a day will come when anything stored on disks like that, like my dad's books, will just become lost simply because no one makes the stuff capable of reading it anymore. And the stuff that already exists will eventually break down. Um, and, you know, the the actual magnetic information on the disks will degrade over time too, just like with magnetic tape. The Eventually you'll, you'll have some of those magnetic particles move out of alignment. That's going to corrupt your data. I know I keep saying data and data. I know I do that. I don't know why I do that, and I can't predict when it happens. It just does. I apologize for it, though, because I know it drives some of you crazy. And my apologies. It just happens. Anyway, those particles will move out of alignment. The information gets corrupted. See, I switched to information there. And then you can't retrieve it anymore. So that can happen, too. Even if you have a working computer system that could theoretically pull that information off the disk, sometimes the information on the disk itself will become corrupt. Now, we also have to keep in mind that media that we still use today, because hardly, I mean, people do still use floppy disks depending on the situation, but it's pretty rare. But even the stuff that we do use today, eventually that's going to become obsolete too. Uh, Just a few years ago, compact disks were the go-to for data storage, at least for personal computers, though a lot of enterprises would continue to rely on magnetic tape for more long-term backups. And compact disks are a type of optical storage, meaning that rather than using magnetism to align tiny particles on a, uh, a, a physical surface, we're using lasers to write and to read from these disks. Uh, the information is stored in what are called pits and lands, pits being a designated pit in the surface and lands being the spaces between pits. Uh, the rewritable CDs actually kind of use foggy and clear 
sections that are very, very tiny. You wouldn't be able to see them with the naked eye. Now, compact disks allowed us to create a more dense storage system. So we could put way more information on a single CD than we could with stuff like floppy disks. Now, unlike cassettes and floppy disks, optical disks are not affected by magnetism. So if you did bring a powerful magnet close to a bunch of floppy disks or cassette tapes or anything that uses magnetic storage, you would scramble the information on there because the powerful magnet would realign the magnetic particles that are on the tape. But optical disks don't have magnetic particles, so they would be immune to that kind of interference. However, this does not mean that optical disks last forever. So the there are many layers on a compact disk. Same thing with DVDs and Blu-rays, by the way. Uh, there are several layers involved. And these layers can have chemical reactions in them. And those chemical reactions can cause those layers to degrade over time. So like a, a CD that's stored in a very humid and warm place, like if, pe if people had stored their CDs, their music CDs inside their car in the summer in Georgia, they might find that those CDs don't last that long. Like they might last a few seasons, but eventually uh, they degrade. And they will, you know, if you're in a hot and humid environment, then a disc is going to degrade faster. Not like instantaneously, but it will start to degrade faster than it would if you stored it in a cooler, uh, dry place. And that outer layer on a CD, that's the clear layer, right? It's protective and it's clear so that a laser can go through it. Uh, but sometimes that clear layer can start to rot away and it can leave the reflective layer that's underneath it exposed. And with some CDs, that reflective layer is made up of a, a of silver or sometimes a, a silver compound. And silver, when exposed to air, will tarnish. The tarnished silver won't reflect a laser properly, and so you start to get errors when you're trying to read information off of that kind of CD. Uh, now, not all CDs were made that way, right? So only some CDs have this particular bronzing issue. In fact, a research group determined that the CDs that really have this specific problem were all pressed in Blackburn, Lancashire, England, between the years 1988 and 1993. That's pretty darn specific. Now, the, the issue here, though, is that there's really no way to give an average lifespan for a compact disc because there's no such thing as an average compact discs. There were, there were so many different manufacturing and pressing processes and recording processes that different ones could last a different, you know, theoretical maximum amount of time. So we can't really answer the question, how long on average will a CD last? I've seen a lot of people suggest five to 10 years, some people saying 10 to 20, some people going as far as 50. I think it really depends on the way the CD was made and what storage facility it's in. Like, is it in a house where it's kept out of sunlight because UV radiation can affect CDs? Uh, is it kept cool and dry? Then it's going to last longer. Is it not handled a lot? Like, if it's your favorite music CD and you handle it a lot, then it's going to degrade faster. Again, not instantaneously, and it may not even be noticeable at first, but eventually you might get the things where it starts to skip on a certain track or it won't even play certain tracks. That will happen over time. 
And it's a similar story for other optical formats, which include, you know, DVDs and Blu-ray discs. These two have a limited lifespan, though that lifespan may stretch to as long as a century under ideal conditions. And a century is a long time for a single person, right? I mean, that's that's a significant amount of time. However, if we step outside of a human's lifespan and we look at it from the perspective of, you know, a historical account, then 100 years is not long at all. I mean, imagine for a moment if you had no access to any information that was recorded before 1922, because all the media that we had used to record info on had fallen apart or was un otherwise unusable or inaccessible, that nothing before 1922 would be knowable apart from what people wrote about those times post-1922. Uh, that would be crazy, right? But that's the kind of situation we're in when we start looking at digital information. All right, well, what about we look at like hard drives, hard disk drives and solid state drives? You know, the stuff that's in your computer systems, your smartphones, that kind of thing. What what do they have? You know, wh how long will information last in those? Well, they store information in different ways. Hard disk drives have one or more platters in them, and each platter has a magnetic coating on it upon which information can be stored. So just like cassettes and floppy disks and other magnetic storage methods, hard disk drives can be affected by powerful magnetic fields because they too store information magnetically. Hard disk drives have moving parts. So the platters spin, quite quite quickly, in fact, and an actuator mechanical arm with a read-write quote-unquote head on it. This is the bit that either can read the magnetic particles that are stored on a platter, or it can actually uh, exert a magnetic field that aligns the particles when you're writing information on the platter. It moves across the platter and it starts to retrieve or write information to the disk itself. And because we're talking about moving parts here, stuff can and does wear down over time and use. If it gets a lot of use, it wears out more quickly. Uh, also, it means that you should be gentle when you're moving anything that happens to have a hard disk drive inside of it because a good whack can damage the delicate parts. If you knock that actuator arm out of alignment, that's a big problem. It's, it's going to be impossible to, to read or write stuff reliably to that hard disk drive. Now, hard drives don't tend to last very long because of those mechanical parts. I've seen estimates of the lifespan for hard disk drives lasting somewhere between three to maybe six and a half years, seven years. Some give it a little bit longer, some a little bit shorter. Of course, a hard disk drive can last longer than a decade, but that's, you know, if we're looking at typical use and we're looking at the average lifespan of hard disk drives, we tend to fall in that three to seven year range. So your mileage may vary. It may depend upon how you use your hard disk drive and the, the setting that you're in. So they will eventually break down. Uh, also, even if they don't break down sooner or later, really later, that magnetic information will start to move out of alignment uh, just naturally. And so even if you were to preserve a hard disk drive perfectly and come back to it in a century, 
chances are a lot of the information would no longer be accessible because the actual magnetic particles would no longer be in the proper alignment. Solid state drives store information in a totally different way from hard disk drives. So instead of aligning magnetic particles, an SSD stores information through flash memory, similar to USB sticks and other types of flash drives. These drives store information using NAND flash, that's N-A-N-D. And that in turn is composed of what are called floating gate transistors. And all of this gets super technical, but let's just kind of imagine it this way. Each floating gate can be either charged, which means it's a zero, or it can be non-charged, which means it's a one. So it gets a little bit confusing because we often think of binary with zero being off and one being on. But in this case, zero means that there is a charge in a cell and one means there is no charge in that cell. And a drive is made up of a grid of these cells. So USB flash drives and SSDs are non-volatile memory. That means that they retain information even if they are not receiving power, right? So if you were to turn off your computer and it has an SSD drive in it, you didn't just wipe out everything that was stored on that SSD. It remains there. However, if an SSD goes without power for an extended period, so we're talking like five to 10 years here, it can experience what is called bit rot. That is, some of those charged gates might lose their charge without access to power. And over time, the information degrades. So SSDs are not immune to deterioration either. You know, given enough time, the information on those will be corrupted as well without any other external forces being applied to the SSDs. Well, what about cloud storage? Because that's changed everything, right? I mean, there's so much of the information that we use day to day that isn't even stored on our, our native device at all, or it, that what is stored on our native device is a temporary uh, representation of that file. The actual file lives in the cloud. Well, assuming that the company that's providing the storage remains strong, data stored in the cloud tends to be pretty darn resilient. And that's because in order to provide a reputable cloud storage service, or really any cloud service, companies have to ensure redundancy. Now, that just means that any information that's stored to the cloud system has to be stored on multiple machines. Because remember, cloud just means someone else's computer. That's really what the cloud is. When you're storing stuff in the cloud, it's not like just floating around in the internet. It's being stored on servers that are part of some massive data server farm that are owned by some even more massive company like Amazon or Microsoft or Google. Now, the reason why these companies store that information on multiple machines is that should a single machine holding information malfunctions or, I don't know, goes on fire or something, there are backups on other machines. So the customer, ideally, never even notices that there's any problem. There's no interruption of service. There's no delay. Their information is still on, quote unquote, the cloud, when really it's on multiple machines. So this is important because most of these data server farm places, they're using really cheap components, like lots of them but they're inexpensive and it's, you know, it's just off the shelf, inexpensive components to 
store all this information or to run processes. Uh, that's what allows them to have this kind of redundancy because they're not spending ridiculous amounts of money to get state-of-the-art machines in there. They don't need that. They just need machines that are you know, more or less reliable and more importantly, inexpensive so that you can have lots of them, so that you have backup. So in the background, these companies can replace broken or damaged systems with newer ones. They can migrate copies of information onto new machines or existing machines, keep things going smoothly, and the customers never notice an issue. Now, there is a caveat there, which I will get to after we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So before the break, I alluded to a caveat about, you know, having these indefinitely resilient data storage systems using the cloud. And that is, I said at the beginning, uh, assuming the company providing the storage remains strong. 
So we have to remember that much of cloud storage out there is resting in these few big companies, and they are really big and thus pretty resilient to change and to going out of business, but they're not immune to it. Uh, even companies like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google have their vulnerabilities. And in fact, we're seeing increased pressure from around the world to break some of these companies up because they are so dominant in their respective spaces. So the odds of these companies going out of business are really, really low, but they're not zero. <laughs> or at least it's not zero that they won't be split up and that ultimately that could lead to uh, discontinuation of services in some areas. So we have to remember that the access to this information remains dependent upon these various companies staying in business and being capable of providing that service. So it's never a guarantee. So even the stuff that's saved in the cloud isn't necessarily permanent. It's probably, it's probably in better shape than say something that's saved on a magnet or a magnetized uh, uh, tape that you keep in your, your neodyne magnet room, it's going to be better than that. But it's not bulletproof. There are several other methods for storing information as well, including some that are you know fairly new. Uh, but the point remains, our ability to hold on to knowledge depends upon the media we use uh, and the machinery we use to access that media. And if we do not consistently move information to new storage methods, we run the risk of losing the older information. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that at the very end, but let's switch gears for a second because sometimes we want to get rid of information. Sometimes we need to wipe some storage. You know, maybe we need to make room for something new. Anyone who's had a gaming PC, you've probably at some point said, all right, well, I got to uninstall a couple of these titles so that I can install the newest game I want to play. Or maybe... We want to just get rid of something we no longer need or use. Or maybe we need to get rid of something because we don't want someone else to see it. Uh, for example, let's say that you've upgraded to a brand new computer and you want to sell your old computer or you're going to donate it to like a school or something, or maybe you just want to recycle it. Well, chances are before you do that, you're going to want to wipe that computer clear of information first. Uh, if there's anything personal on that computer, you probably don't want it falling into someone else's hands. Like, let's say you get some financial or medical information that was stored somewhere on that machine. You definitely want to get that wiped off before you hand it over to someone else. Well, what happens when you delete data? Well, if you're using a, a computer and you're moving files to the recycle bin, that doesn't actually mean that the files are gone. Even emptying the recycle bin doesn't necessarily mean the files are gone. What it means is that the computer has essentially designated the respective parts on the storage system holding those files as being available for new information. So it, like the markers that would designate that as being a file are gone, but the file itself, the information of the file itself is still there. But then when it's time for you to save new information to your computer, some of that new information might be overwritten on top of the older files that you quote unquote deleted. So over time, you will slowly eradicate the information of that deleted file as your computer writes new information to those segments, but it's not instantaneous. And the important thing to remember is that deleting a file doesn't mean the file is gone. It's not enough to just delete a file. 
Many operating systems include options to let you permanently delete files. And this option typically just involves overwriting the selected deleted files with information, usually garbage data that doesn't actually mean anything. The original file is gone and it's replaced with gibberish. But let's say you have to be absolutely certain that no one will ever retrieve information from your hard drive. Maybe this computer held crucial financial information for an important company, or maybe it held medical information for lots of people and say like a hospital, and it's time for you to downgrade the system and get rid of it. Well, you're going to really want to make sure that that machine is wiped clear. So then you might want to engage in <laughs> what I would like to think of as the nuclear option. It's called the Gutman method. Uh, so Peter Gutman and Colin Plum came up with this process in the 90s. It involves overwriting a disk drive with gibberish 35 times using different patterns, including some that are not patterns, but random passes. So there's no pattern at all. It's just a random overwrite pass, followed by a whole bunch of patterned overwrites, followed by more random passes. Uh, and this is because even with your standard gibberish overwrite, it can still be possible for a determined person with the right tools to retrieve at least some information off of a hard drive. Um, this is because of that magnetic storage. We're talking about the, the hard disk drive era here. So we're really talking about looking for faint traces of magnetic imprints that could suggest what the original data saved on that hard disk drive was. Even by overwriting, those faint traces might remain. So this was Gutman's way of just obliterating any trace of what was there originally. So you really got to go to extremes, or at least you used to, uh, because Gutman and Plum were really concerned about that magnetic issue. These days, most experts suggest that the Gutman method is really overkill, uh, especially if you're using a solid state drive and that after three passes, you're usually in pretty reliable shape and you don't have to worry about someone getting access to your information. Uh, there are also several software packages on the market that can go through the process of deleting files permanently, usually using some form of multi-pass overwrite patterns. Uh, multi-pass meaning going over the entire storage drive, not like Lilu Dallas multi-pass. Sometimes folks go to even further extremes, such as using powerful magnets to destroy, you know, magnetic storage. That happens where, you know, you're you're That'll be part of the process. Uh, some will even use shredders to destroy like hard disk platters and such so that not only have the files been thoroughly deleted and overwritten, but the physical media itself has been physically destroyed. That's probably overkill for most of us, unless you go by a three number designation like 009 or something. Uh, but it really is interesting to me that information can simultaneously be challenging to preserve and difficult to get rid of. But we're also talking about different timescales here, right? It's not apples to apples. For preservation, we're really concerned about the long haul. How can we keep information accessible even as the way we generate, store, and retrieve information changes? How can we ensure that future generations will have access to the information that's at our disposal today? There are so many offshoots of this as well. For example, the desire to preserve old information is what drove the creators of the multi-arcade machine emulator software, or MAME, to do what they do. 
they wanted to create a way to preserve code that otherwise could fade into obscurity because these old arcade machines were physically coded onto chips that were part of these arcade cabinets. And over time, more of those cabinets end up being destroyed or they become inoperable. And so this was an attempt to create a system that would preserve that code to make it playable. Uh, not necessarily for people to play, but again, to preserve the code itself. Otherwise, it would be lost. And as for destroying information, well, that tends to be for short-term requirements, right? Uh, if there's nothing that's threatening us or our information, well, we could just play the waiting game, depending on how we've stored the information in the first place. Because sooner or later, the medium that the information is on will deteriorate or it'll go obsolete and no one will be able to get the information anyway, including you. So if you don't, if you're not in a rush, you could just wait <laughs> and the information will eventually no longer be accessible. Now, related to these concepts, by the way, is the challenge of figuring out how to future-proof messaging so that people far into the future will understand what those messages mean. Let's think back to the Egyptian example. Without the Rosetta Stone, we would have no way of knowing what the hieroglyphs mean. Not for sure. We could have a lot of hypotheses, but we wouldn't be able to really test them and prove that our hypothesis is accurate. So let's take an example. Let's take the problem of nuclear waste from nuclear power facilities. So some nuclear waste remains dangerous for thousands of years, uh, and we have to store it. We have to put it someplace where it's out of the way and safe. And it also means that any warnings that we put up at nuclear waste storage facilities really needs to be easy for future generations to interpret, even if they have lost all other records of what that site is. So the signage needs to convey this place is dangerous. But then as that hieroglyphs example showed us, this is easier said than done. We might do something that to us seems completely obvious, but there's no way of knowing that people 10,000 years from now will still understand it. There are experts who work hard to create iconography and messaging that someone unfamiliar with our current alphabet and language and symbols might understand. So for a really awesome treatment of this topic, I highly recommend a classic episode of 99% Invisible, a phenomenal show. If you've never listened to it, you definitely need to. It is, it is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. But this particular one comes from way back when. It was like 2014 when it published, and it is titled 10,000 Years. Really a great, great episode. You should check that out. It's an incredible treatment of the challenge of how do you convey information to people that you, you, there's no way for us to know anything about them. Uh, and keeping in mind, like we're talking 10,000 years because nuclear waste can stay dangerous that long. You, you go back 10,000 years and you suddenly think, wow, yeah, creating a message that would be readable 10,000 years from now, that is going to be super challenging to do. So yeah, storing data, retrieving data, destroying data, all of these things have their own uh, challenges and obstacles in front of them. It's important for us to think about because it's also important for us to take steps to preserve things when we can. Um, there are other great examples we can use. One I would point out is that uh, a lot of people, particularly in my generation, 
we used stuff like Facebook to become kind of the storage center for photographs, right? Like I, I have hundreds of photos stored on Facebook, but then I decided to piece out of Facebook. So I needed to download my Facebook information because otherwise I was going to lose access to all those pictures that I had stored. And it was just a kind of thing I had taken for granted that I would always be on Facebook and I would always have access to those images. And now I don't. And so it's, it, it's again, an example of things that we have to keep in mind when we choose a storage method is that we should also occasionally think of ways to migrate information to a new storage method to make certain that we don't lose what came before. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode about the paradoxical nature of information in the digital age. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events... You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.